Our passage this morning is in 1 Samuel, chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning and would like one, you can raise your hand and our Frontlines team will come around and bring one to you. And if you would like to take it home with you, you are more than welcome to keep it. So once again, 1 Samuel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say for you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. He will point them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint to himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, some to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He shall take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men, your donkeys, and he will put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, and we also may be like all the nations around us, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to be uh, with each and every single one of you. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new to uh, Church of the City, a special welcome to you. Uh, I want to invite you uh, to be able to engage your minds this morning. We are talking about what life looks like from the posture of living life over 
God. Now, last week we began at the posture of life under God. Today we turn to life over God. And a little bit of a review, last week's life under God is that you see God as kind of the one that you obey. And if I obey him, then God essentially owes me because of my obedience to him. Uh, Today is a complete pendulum swing the other direction of life over God. There is a 3rd century B.C. philosopher by the name of Epicurus. And Epicurus, uh, some of us who maybe have studied philosophy before, had an idea. And Epicureanism uh, was really responding to the Stoics who reckoned that the gods in the world were basically the same thing. And Epicurus looked on this world of the Stoics and said, this doesn't make any sense. And he began having new thoughts and kind of a rebellion to that way of thinking. And he declared that the gods were totally removed from the world and never intervened in its affairs, which means the natural world was free to evolve under its own streams. The central definition for Epicurean Epicureanism is that the gods don't care what you do, and you are in any case simply a bunch of atoms that he has emerged from random processes and will disintegrate at death. Now, in the 18th century, Epicureanism partnered with a theological revolt. At the time, people they didn't want to. They, didn't want, they wanted to get away from the bully in the sky. There was a political revolution. People wanted to be free to choose their own system. And there was also an advancement in scientific and technology. And essentially what people were saying, this is a quote from N.T. Wright. He says, we don't want the stuff that is being handed down to us. We will make the world work in on, on our own and on our own terms. And as a result, the freedom of the individual is seen as the greatest good in society. Now, you and I sit here today, and we hear this, and we go, wow, that idea has really taken off, right? The world in which we live, the culture in which we live, I should say more so the culture of the West, is the greatest good is the glorification and the fulfillment of the individual self. Do away with God. Do away with morality and what he would hand down to you. Get away with the bully in the sky, The grumpy man that is always looking on you, judging your every move. How dare we have that sort of position. Now, as we talked about last week, the reason that we have these different postures of thinking about God is because of our initial rebellion against God. We learned that in the Garden of Eden, chapters 1 and 2 of the Bible, That God creates humanity and he creates them and is in perfect relationship with them. But humanity rebels against God and separates itself. And since then, humanity, you and I, have been trying in many ways either to get back to that place or in the life over God posture, say, I don't think God is necessary. He might be there. If he is, who cares? Let's live our own life. Let's do our own thing. Don't worry about God. People that are religious are irrational. They don't even, they've lost lost their minds. Don't even worry about those people. Now, you might be sitting here today, and this might be your position. Welcome to Church of the City. We are especially glad that you are here, and we hope that today we can engage in a conversation about this existence of God, and particularly here at Church of the City, the existence of the Christian God. Let's get back to the passage that Sonia read for us. 
In this text, we see the children of Israel moving in the direction of life over God. The children of Israel have been directed and led by a group of judges. We have the prophet Samuel, or the priest Samuel, who in this situation has had his sons serve as judges over Israel. And the Israelite leaders come to Samuel and they say, your sons are doing a bad job. We don't want to be led by them anymore. We want to have a king. Give us a king. Samuel. Now Samuel, as we find out in the text, immediately feels, what what do you mean a king? You have a king. God's your king. They come back, no, we, we want a king. In this text, we see that God says, give them what they want. They have not rejected you, Samuel. Don't take this personally, buddy. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as I was to be their king. And so what we see the Israelites doing is that they are simply responding against their past. They're responding against this life under God. They're now saying, let's get along with the way the nations around us are living and let's get a king like everybody else. That seems like the most practical situation and the most practical thing to do in this current time and in this current situation. And so what we see, first and foremost, is that life over God is the pendulum swing in the opposite direction of life under God. It's a pendulum swing. Exists. We don't like the idea of a life under God or with the existence of God. So let's go in the other direction of life over God. For the Israelites, they wanted something different than what was the current reality. And in their minds, things were not working with the judges, and they want a new alternative. Now, in our culture, life over God is sometimes expressed as atheism, which is a pendulum swing of life under God. And one of the arguments that you're going to find with people who have an atheistic worldview is, look at all the pain and division that religion has caused. Do away with all religion, God, and discussions of eternal destinations, and the world will finally have peace. Essentially, Religion is divisive and causes pain in the world. How many of you have heard this before? The religion, they're the problem. Get away with religion. We're beyond that now. Get some sense on your shoulders. Now, a couple of challenges to this worldview that I would present is one of the problems with this worldview is that do away with religion and you still have the problem of human nature. Because here's the thing, evil runs through the human heart. It's not the direct result of religion. Therefore, people will find other reasons to fight, kill each other, and be divided. You see, there's even debate and division within atheism. I don't know if you knew this. There's the new atheists, and then there's a group that's called the accommodationists. And they even argue between one another. Where the new atheists are like, we've got to go after the religious people and take them down. Accommodation is like, no, we don't need to go after them. Let's find common ground and help change the world. And there's even division that's created within that own group. Secondly, history tells a different story if we were to just do away with religion. Some of the most oppressive regimes of the 20th century were constructed on the philosophical foundations of secular atheism. We could just take Stalin's Soviet Union, for example, which killed 20 million people or North Korea, with two million people. So do away with religion, you're still left with the human nature and the human heart. Does this make sense? Yes. 
A second argument that, that atheists will make is if there is a God and we are to live in submission to him, let alone under him, and he is just, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? How many of you have heard this one? Show of hands. Many people, this is, this is the, the main argument. And let, let's just be honest as Christians, okay? This is a challenge. And if you are, are like me and, and someone brings something up and they're maybe even sharing a personal example of a pain that they have experienced in their life, it's hard to sit in that, that conversation or in that, in that situation and just say, you know what, Bo, but God's in control. They don't want to hear that. Because they go, if God's really in control, I don't think he would have allowed this to happen. So as Christians, we need to be honest about the problem of pain and suffering. But then what you need to do is you need to think about pain and suffering and you need to think about it through the lens of which worldview makes the most sense or which one is most rational as it comes to the problem of pain to suffering. Of all of the marketplace of ideas that are out there, which worldview makes the most sense of pain and suffering? Philosophical reasoning for the evidence for evidence and the existence of God in pain and suffering is that evil and suffering is actually evidence for God. If you are sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, you are assuming the reality of some supernatural standard to make your judgment. So if you think that things are unjust, it's out of whack, why do you think it's out of whack? What is it within you that, that gets you so burned up inside of, this is bad, this is wrong? Because if we are all, in many ways, and I know I, I'm trying to simplify in very dense arguments, okay? So I apologize if I don't do them full justice. But if we are simply survival of the fittest, if, you know, you just get further along in your own existence, in your own life, then some of the realities of suffering and pain in the world simply take out the weakest. So don't worry about it. But if there's something more within you that goes, no, there's something, this is bad, this can't happen, then it actually screams for evidence of an ultimate truth, an ultimate justice. And then secondly, evil and suffering isn't actually evidence against God. Just because you can't see a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there ultimately can't be one. And some of us would say that the times in your life where you experienced the most pain and suffering actually became the times in your life where you maybe grew stronger, you learned the most from those experiences, which shows us that in the midst of our pain and suffering, if there is a God, that he can use that pain and suffering for ultimate good. Now, specifically speaking to the reasons for a Christian God in the midst of pain and suffering, is that in the Christian understanding and worldview, we actually see the suffering of God. See, God enters in the form of Jesus into the human condition to suffer alongside us and die at the hands of a suffering people. Secondly, in the Christian worldview, we see redemption and suffering. Jesus' death deals with the human nature challenge I mentioned before, if God is to make the world good and right, he would need to eliminate all of us. 
But Jesus' death instead provides a way. I like this quote from a guy by the name of Mark Clark. He says, Christianity offers the God who brings comfort in the midst of suffering. It says God came and suffered himself. God himself wept. God himself was scared. God himself was beaten and killed. God himself didn't always get to walk on the water, but actually drowned like the rest of us and won't always protect us from drowning, but offers us life on the other side of it. He died, but he rose again and now lives in a state of glory that all the suffering in the world can't compare to if we trust him and hold on to him as we live and as we die. So Christianity offers redemption in light of our suffering, that there is hope at the end of this, that ultimately this is not meaningless. And lastly, we have the resurrection and suffering, and that one day there will be final resurrection, and in that day there will be, number one, justice for the evil that have been done by the hands of people, and two, that there will be restoration of the planet that is broken and has led to catastrophic suffering on global scales. So here's the problem for the atheistic worldview. By escaping God and religion, atheists must still face the pain, suffering, and chaos of this world, and now without any reason or explanation for meaning, hope, or redemption. It's a quote from Keller's new book, Making Sense of God. In our current phase of American history, we have lost belief in God and salvation, or in any shared sense of national greatness and destiny. We do not see serving God or the nation as being more important than self-actualization. We do not consider the claims of religion or national loyalty to ever overrule our pursuit of individual freedom or happiness. Our hope now is for the individual freedom to pursue our own private ideas of good and to discover our authentic selves. The great trouble with that story, however, is that it does not do what every other worldview and cultural narrative has sought to do in the past. It cannot incorporate into itself and render meaningful the single most immutable and certain fact of life, death. In the contemporary individualistic secular understanding of things, death simply interrupts and stops the story. It does not enhance progress towards your goals, but destroys it. So this is why in the face of it's irrational, it doesn't make any sense, we step into those questions and say, no, there is reason for rational thought. You know, I was, I was watching uh, this movie the other day, and many of you know I like movies, and it's uh, Free State of Jones with Matthew McConaughey. Really, really interesting movie. Um, and in this is an era in which there is slavery, And much of the hope of the African-American population as they were enduring this slavery was that life on this earth was not the final word. But that they could endure the suffering that they experienced because once they died, they actually began to experience true freedom. In a secular worldview, that's not the case. Your story is ended. There's no hope, there's no meaning beyond life on this earth. So this is one of the perspectives in a life-over-God approach. A completely, there's nothing. But that doesn't fully represent what's going on in the text today in 1 Samuel. Because in many ways, the Israelites were still believing in the existence of God. They're just saying, let's do away with him as our king, and let's move on to other things. Which we can describe as deism. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5 and verse 20. It says... This is the Israelites saying to Samuel, 
Appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations, that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. So notice what they're not doing. They're not saying that God's going to go before us in fighting our battles. They're saying, we need a king who will go before us and fight our battles. Because look at all the other nations around us. They have kings that go before them and fight their battles. So this is another point about the life over God. Life over God affirmed God exists, but believes he is now distant and relatively uninvolved in the matters of ordinary life. In this view, God's expectation is that we figure out how things function rather than lean on him for what we should do. Example is essentially God's a watchmaker. He makes it and now he steps back and watches it works. Life over God dismisses irrational superstition or belief in God and seeks control by discovering how the world works and then directly implements the right principles. Life over God cuts out the middleman and gives us direct control over our lives. So as we talked about last week, the way that humanity tries to get control back over God is through strict observance and obedience. Because I've obeyed you, God, now you owe me because I'm a great obeying person. Life over God says, okay, I'm going to figure out the way this thing works. And once I figure out the way it works, I don't even need God. So see you later. I've got the way it works. I don't need you to be an existent thing. I don't need you to be an engaged thing because I've got the way that it works. And once I got the way that it works, everything is going to be fine. Now, what you'll see is that in many ways in our culture, you have the battle between the life under God people and the battle of the life over God people. Because the life under God people scream at the life over God people, and the life over God people are sometimes going, hey guys, we got to study science. we got to figure out uh, how this world functionally works. You've got the life under God people that are like, no, no, you just have to have strict observance to God and his laws. What it just says here in the Bible, unrelated to any sort of study of what's actually going on in the text, but just read it how it is, and then that will be totally fine. So uh, a perfect example is evolutionary creationists versus six literal day creationists. And they fight over and over and over and over and over again because the one group's going, life under God, we can't question it. Life over God, people are going, I think there might be something to this longer than six literal day thing. And so you have the two groups fighting with one another of life under God and life over God. Rather than just simply finding the place of agreement of, okay, I think God started this whole thing. We couldn't, let's leave some bit of this to mystery. But you see how the life under and the life over can be in conflict with one another? Now here's the problem of the life over God, purely this approach, is that it idolizes the material world. It idolizes the material world. That we can find all of our answers within the material world and we don't need to have any sort of belief in something beyond it. Here's the problem with that. There are things in this world that you can't study under a microscope. There are concepts of human nature, of love versus hate, that you can't study under a microscope. You know, much of the problem that I find with debates between uh, Christians and uh, atheists is that in many ways they're talking about different things. Because the atheists, by and large, come in with their, their scientific evidence, and the Christian stands there and doesn't talk much, much science at all, or they talk about more of a philosoph- philosophical understanding of the way things are. 
And it drives me nuts because for me, I see, hey, you know what? I think that there's actually something that science tells us that religion can't, but I think there's something that religion touches on that science could never touch on. So maybe they need to be complements of one another, but in the life over God approach, it says we just study the material, we idolize it, we figure this out, and then everything's going to be completely fine. But it doesn't get to the core of some of our deep questions about why do we exist? What is the purpose of our life here? How are we to live amongst each other beyond just just survive? Find out the greatest way to survive. No, can we thrive as we survive? Are we part of something greater than just the existence of 2016, December, sitting here on the 4th, engaging with one another? Is there something, when you're listening to that music and you suddenly start feeling a, something greater than just your, your emotions on this level, but you start thinking, I'm relating to someone here. There's something greater than this. Rather than just studying how your emotions respond. So in life over God, it, it idolizes and idolatry comes of the material world. Secondly, the problem is that faith is reduced to principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions. And if you can apply these principles without God being involved at all. So God's participation is altogether optional. So here's some current examples in, in kind of like the Christian bookstore world. Is that we can find, you go and you can find books, Five Steps to a More Godly Marriage. Right? We figured out the laws and principles. I don't need to be in relationship with God for him to fix my marriage. I just need to figure out God's principles for fixing my marriage, and then we'll get our our marriage fixed. The idea is that you're essentially, you want to have a relationship with the book that the mechanic wrote rather than a relationship with the mechanic himself. And we do the exact same thing with the Bible. We treat the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Look at this book of principles and laws. Let's just figure out the laws. This is what Sky Jathani writes in With. When the Bible is primarily seen as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way in we engage God and his word. Rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our communion with him, we search the scriptures for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and life. This is not Christianity. This is Christian deism. In other words, we actually replace a relationship with God for a relationship with the Bible. If one has the repair mechanic, why bother with the expense of the mechanic? So here's the thing. In our zeal to honor the importance of God's word and extol its usefulness, we may unintentionally do the exact opposite thing. I heard someone call this perspective Christian atheism. Fascinating. Another problem with the life over God approach is that the principles will change as culture changes. The life over God evolves with the majority values of the current culture, seeing God's directives as out of touch. For the Israelites, if current culture has a monarchy, we need a monarchy too. While principles may be found in the Bible, if the culture changes, the principles may need to as well to accommodate cultural change. You know what the most incredible thing, this is going to the the importance and value of what God has revealed to us in his word, is that in each case throughout history, when this book was coming into compilation, being, being written, is it didn't agree with the current culture. You see, we don't have a book that goes, okay, this is the way everything goes on in this culture. This, this book kind of affirms everything that's going on. No, the scriptures go against what's going on in those current cultures because it transcends culture. 
So it does not simply respond. But in the life over God, we say, okay, but that's not the best way to live anymore. You know, he maybe intended that for that culture. But in this culture, we do things differently. The scriptures come out and say, no. God is still God. He does not change. We understand his word by applying it with accuracy based upon studying its history, understanding its language, and then identifying how it is then applied in our culture. Rather than here is what we define as our culture, let's go and have the Bible affirm what we want in our cultural understanding. Another challenge with the life over God approach is that it assumes the way God worked in the past is how he will work in the future. So for the Israelites, they want to be like the other nations around them, and they expect God to bless them like he had others. Here is one of the greatest temptations of church leaders today. Church leaders want to be effective. So these conferences go on, and the idea is, come to our conference, and we'll help you have the most effective church in your city. Because people say that this is the way it worked in one scenario and situation. So come to our conference. We'll give you all the tools for it to work in that one way. You go back to your church. You apply all of these principles and your church will grow. Because it's easier to apply principles than it is to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. So here's what you can do. You can plant a church and God could not be involved with it. And you will have people show up. Isn't that amazing that that can actually be the case? So rather than saying, God, we need to lean upon what you want to do here at this time in this city through the ministry of our church, we say, what, is, what are the ways that God is working in these other churches? Let's simply do and mimic what they're doing and hope that it works here. That's life over God. When board meetings become, how do we grow? When, well, we can't talk about Jesus anymore, because that might offend people, and that's how it worked over there. We simply go, no, let's be in relationship with this creator, and let's respond. i got to be honest, this is a really big challenge because people now see effective church ministry as church ministries that grow. And sometimes you show up at conferences and you sit down around a table and someone says, well, how are you doing? You know that they're not actually wanting to know how my heart is doing. You know that they're wanting to know how the church is doing. One time I was at a conference and uh, it was a devotional thought and the speaker was actually like, I hate these things. (laughs) And you're like, what? You're speaking at it. But he's like, "I, I don't like these things because all of us feel like we have to make excuses for God if we don't feel like God's doing something currently in our church. Right? Well, you know, God's just in a real season of, you know, he's not really doing much. But you know, something's gonna happen. We really believe that something's gonna happen. And that's why we're at this conference, because we need to get all of the right tools so we can go back to our city and, and apply them correctly. You know what would be the win of Church of the City? Is if we simply assisted you in your relationship with Jesus, in your intimacy with him. 
that by proclaiming the word on a Sunday morning, that by singing songs that remind us of his presence, that draw us into a deeper, intimate fellowship with him, that you don't want that just every Sunday. You want that every minute of every single day. But if that's not what we're doing, we've got to figure something out. Life over God, another challenge of it, is it maintains desire for control. The Israelites believe a monarchy will guarantee their future. People want a three-step solution to a better prayer life because it's far more predictable and manageable than actual relationship with God. For example, it is now possible to have a Christian marriage, a Christian business, and even a Christian nation without Christ actually being present. It's from Sky in his book. You know, I sit with people often, and they're like, you know, my relationship, my, my time with God isn't going well. What do I do? Essentially asking the, the question, like, how do I make it better the fastest? Friends, sometimes it just involves seasons of dryness and being patient. Being patient. Life over God and other challenges, and it actually leaves a burden of fear while promise to lessen fear by giving us control over our lives through proven formulas, it actually saddles us with a degree of responsibility we were never intended to carry. The need is to manage every variable, control every minutia, and ensure we are following the prescribed principles, which actually makes fear more potent in our lives. Because we need God's will for our life. Do you know, this is, this is a statistic, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every single month. 1,500. Why? Because they feel pressured under the burden of this thing's got to grow. And it's now it's shrinking. Remember one of the greatest pieces of advice someone ever gave me. He said, Matt, if you take, uh, if you take the credit for when it grows, you've got to take the blame for when it shrinks. You know what Jesus says? He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will do what he wants in this church. I can be honest, I am tempted sometimes to want to be in his position, to live life over him. Well, God, you'll just bless because I'll have all these righteous motives, which are really selfish motives, desire and control, but sometimes we disguise it as righteous motives. Well, God, if more people would just find out, hold on. And then finally, Success is based on effective outcomes rather than faithfulness to God's calling. The most intriguing thing that I find about this 1 Samuel 8 passage, and I've I got to be honest, I go back to this one all the time. It's kind of a life, life changer for me. Is that God, after the text that we've read, says, If your king will wholly submit and serve me, then I will bless you. So after listing off all of the reasons as to why a monarchy is not a great idea, he then says, but I'll bless you through it. So in many ways, it's actually saying is you could be effective by going that direction, but they're actually not being faithful. Does this make sense? Is that success becomes effectiveness rather than faithfulness. And so the big point that we need to see here is that life over God is actually rejection of God. 
We go back to verse 7 of chapter 8. This is what God says. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. I'm not good enough for them now. They feel like they need something else. They need quick fixes. It's like six signs of the best way to know that you're in relationship with God. They want three applicable truths that will make everything better. They want the best-looking king that will ever, all the other nations will talk about them. They want the strongest military. They don't actually want me. So here are three signs you may be living in over-God mode. And this is uh, from Keller. He actually uh, said in this article that it was uh, three signs of a fake Christian versus a real Christian. I haven't titled it that, but you can do with that as you wish. Three signs you may be in over-God mode. Number one, there's no evidence of God's presence in your life. Here's some questions to ask. How real has God been to you this week in your heart? How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? To what degree is that real to you right now? Are you having any particular seasons of sweet delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Do you really sense him giving you his love? The second sign is no evidence of Scripture changing you. Have you been finding Scripture to be alive and active? Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Are you finding God's calling you or challenging you to something through the Word? In what ways is He doing that? You know, one of the things I know for myself is I can have great quality in God's Word, but sometimes I lack the quantity. Or sorry, I lack the backwards. Sometimes I can have great quantity, but I don't have great quality. Where it's like I'm doing my Bible in a year thing. It's like boom, 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 boom. Congratulations, you've completed day 302. Way to go. And I'm like, yeah, God, high five. But he's like, you didn't, you didn't spend any time with me there. You just read Ezekiel really fast. <laughs> Third evidence, no evidence of growing appreciation for God's mercy. Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? Are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil in your heart and in response a growing dependence on grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God? Are these truths reminding you? Are they, are they daily encouragements that, you know what, I am, I am a saved child of the Most High God and with whom he is well pleased. Is that changing the way you respond to other people? Is that changing the way you respond to your kids, to your spouse, to someone you're in class with, to a professor you don't agree with? Is that influencing your daily rhythms? Because if none of these things, then you're in Christian atheism, Christian deism, that there is a God, but he's uninvolved with me. You've taken the alternative rather than relationship. Here's what the scriptures invites us into. And you're maybe someone, you're, again, you you're, would define yourself as an atheist or agnostic. This is all kind of beyond you. Hear this, that the maker of the universe in which Christianity talks about gives us a hope, gives us a meaning, gives us a purpose in light of all of the brokenness in this world. And not only gives us that meaning, but then wants to be in relationship with us. To, to, to walk with us in suffering, out of suffering, in pain, out of it. 
And he gives us these invitations. Psalm 46, verse 10. Just close your eyes and listen to these words. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Galatians 5, verse 16 and verse 25. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Listen to that again. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It does not say walk by seven key principles for overcoming lust. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The gospel invites us into a love relationship with the Father who has demonstrated his incredible love for us. You know, I recognize that over the last couple of years, I've begun to use the illustration of my relationship with my sons to better understand a relationship of us to our Heavenly Father. I think it is apt. I think it is a very, very helpful thing to understand our relationship with our kids. But, you know, if you think as a parent... And you think about your relationship with your kids. I think about my relationship with my dad. And growing up at times, I misinterpreted that I would have more love if I only obeyed more often. Or if I figured out how he wanted to be loved or how he wanted to be obeyed. And if I only lived into those principles, that he would then love me more. Or I felt like, well, dad doesn't really need to be in relationship with me because I'm just doing all the things he wants me to do that he's already set out for me. My father wants to just be in relationship with me. My son, he just wants me to be in relationship with him. To get down on the ground and to play with his toys. Not me have all of the seven steps to building the best Tom and Tank engine track and go do it and I'll sit on my phone in the corner. It is to get down on my knees and to play with the track with him to figure it out together, to grow in relationship with one another. So rather than removing him, to enter into that relationship. This is the invitation of the good news of Jesus Christ. That while there has been separation between humanity and God, he does not desire that separation to be filled by us figuring out all of the principles. He desires for that to be filled by sending his son who died for you and for me, so we could enter into a love relationship, an intimate relationship, one that abides with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this morning we could engage with some more intellect. God, you tell us that we are to engage you with our minds. 
And so, God, I pray that we can talk about reason. We can talk about, uh, God, philosophical understandings of why it is rational and reasonable to consider the existence of God, but then also to see that the Christian worldview of the existence of God provides what we would believe the best alternative to the other worldviews. God, I thank you that you are a God that came and suffered with us. And then you also give us hope in the midst of our suffering. And I pray, God, that rather than seeing you as a distant reality or a concept to be constructed, God, that we would simply enter into relationship with you, that we would desire intimate knowledge of you, intimate uh, understanding of what it means to, to be closer, to know your presence, to know your nearness on a daily basis. God, may that shape our existence here on this world and in this world. God, I pray that as we leave today, God, that this wouldn't have been, oh, there, were, there was my concepts for what I'm going to believe all week, but God, that this would have simply been an, a representation of in Guelph as it is in heaven, Lord, so that we want to experience your presence each and every single day, not just on Sunday mornings. So God, if we are sitting in a place of complete atheism, I pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts to your existence. God, if we are in Christian atheism, Christian deism, God, that we would... Recognize, God, that that is actually rejection of you, and may we enter into a relationship that you invite us into. Renew our lives, renew our hearts today, we pray. Amen.